Hey guys, welcome to um, whatever week it is. I don't know what number week it is, but I do know the topic. Um, it's illumination and interpretation of scripture. So just as um, a way of announcements, make sure that you are working on your evangelism journal. It is not um, over yet, but also in your email, you should have gotten um, reading selections. I think it should be a Google link for that or a Google Drive link for that. And then also a link to your close reading assignment. And so hopefully this lecture will help you prepare for that assignment and also serve as a resource. And so it might look a little bit different. The third part of our lecture today is gonna be kind of walking through um, less conclusions and more questions. And so hopefully you'll be able to use both this lecture, but also the PowerPoint that goes along with it um, as a resource to finish that close reading assignment. So the flow for today or for this, um, this series of lectures is going to be first, kind of the philosophy and theology behind interpreting the Bible, largely theological guardrails for understanding scripture. The second piece is going to be the challenges to interpretation. I think that um, often we are tempted to think either that interpretation is really easy and natural and intuitive, and we don't need to think that hard about it. We just read the text and there it is. Um, but the, on, the, on the other side, we can um, have a tendency to, to think maybe it's too hard and only ex the experts can do it. And I think that the real way forward is somewhere in the middle. But in order to find that path forward, we have to be honest um, and uh, really look with clear eyes at the challenges to interpretation. So we'll spend some time on that. And then the last piece, we'll be walking through probably a lot of information. In fact, I think you'll be very proud of my PowerPoints. You know how I am about technology. And honestly, it's been a while since I did a um, recorded one somehow. I don't know how that has happened, but um, trying to manage all of the different screens is, whew, it's a lot. So, um, but I just hope that when we get to the last set of slides and you see the number of um, slides and information that you feel really proud of me. But um, anyway, maybe I'll just feel proud of myself. That's fine. That would be fine too. So anyway, we're going to get into the philosophy and theology of um, interpreting the Bible and then into the real nitty gritty and kind of more of a emphasis on how to. So first, let's start with the big picture, 35,000 foot view, right? Philosophical perspective. Interpreting the Bible the foundational aspect of theology. Why? Because all the theology we've been teaching you so far goes back to what? The Bible. All of what we've learned, whether Christian story or Christian belief or even Christian formation, stands upon our understanding of God's word. So we better get it right. Now, in the fall, we said that all of theology stands on who God is, that he is a triune God who reveals himself to us. Logically and philosophically, that is true. But practically and experientially, we start with his word. We start with his word. Now, we, um, we did talk in our Revelation lecture, and certainly um, any of you guys who are going through Roman study um, I don't know if Mosaic is, I know Eastside is. Um, in Romans 1, we talk about this idea of general revelation and it being sufficient in some senses. And certainly in general revelation, we see sort of a fleshing and filling out 
of um, what is particularly or what we would call specially revealed in God's word. And so we are dealing today with special revelation. Special revelation or scripture is what we need to understand um, who God is, and it's how God has chosen to reveal himself to us. So if scripture is the beginning in many ways and the end in many ways of theology, um, why did we wait until this part of Forge to address interpretation? Why didn't we put it as more foundational? Well, we certainly could have. There's, we're making up, I and mean, we have our own reasons for different stuff. It's not like there's nothing particular or magical about the way that we've ordered the curriculum, but we really wanted to uh, place this here because interpreting God's word is where human being and holy being come together. Really, everything about the word of God is where human being and holy being meet. Human being and holy being meet. I'm using the word holy being really here to refer to all of God, but more specifically, the Holy Spirit. Just wanted to be, you know, catchy and sticky and alliterative. The Holy Spirit and humans interact together through the word of God. Not Exclusively, there are other ways that the Holy Spirit interacts with us, um, but this is um, sort of the nexus, the, the heart of the communication between human beings and the holy being God. So um, interpreting God's word is something that you and I do. It's a God-given task. It feels very human in some ways, trying to understand. It's part of uh, the dominion and the cultural mandate that we were all called to. And as I think I may have said this before, but one of my favorite things to say is that interpreting the Bible is the homework of the church. It's our homework. We were given the assignment. Do you understand it? But when I say that it is the place where human being and holy being come together, what I mean by that is that when we are interpreting the word, the Holy Spirit is illuminating it to us. When we are interpreting the word, our experience might be that we are doing the work of understanding, but on a spiritual level, the Holy Spirit is illuminating it to us. So this is the point in our curriculum where we are turning toward the work of the spirit in particular, and also how the spirit cooperates and co-labors and tasks with the church. And so in that sense, it makes sense in our minds to put um, a kind of a how-to and a philosophical uh, lecture on how do we interpret the word? Because the word is going to be central to, to so much of how the spirit and the church interact together. Now, in order to, um, to approach scripture, we need to talk, and I'm going to do it very briefly, um, about how the church has historically understood the relationship between the whole human beings and holy being or holy spirit as it relates to scripture. So all text requires context, right? I need to know something about this text before I can even get into it. Are you about to tell me a joke? Is it an advertisement? Is this um, a novel? All of those things will set up my expectations for how I'm going to interpret this text. So we need a little bit of that kind of context, if you will, read the envelope um, or figure out if it even is in an envelope. So let me move over to my slides because I do have um, some different vocabulary words, I guess, for you. 
Um, I'm going to share my screen if I can do it right. You never know with me, right? Um, I think I got it. No? Yes? Yes. Here we go. All right. Part one, scripture, theological guardrails. So perhaps the most important attribute and most important theological guardrail that we believe is that scripture was inspired by God. Okay. So inspired by God. Now, when we say inspired by God, we don't mean that um, it like he was our muse. We mean that it was inspired as in breathed out, inspired to breathe respiration. It was breathed out by God. And so it is a work of God. Now, sometimes we'll use this um, kind of category of verbal plenary inspiration, or maybe the other way to say it is there's two qualifiers to inspiration, verbal and plenary. So plenary means that all of scripture as a whole is the word of God. I think we like to emphasize that to, um, for kind of, there's two guardrails within that idea. One is that we cannot leave out any part of scripture or say that any part of it is not God breathed. But then on the other hand, we're also emphasizing the whole. So we're not necessarily saying that every single aspect of scripture carries the same weight, or maybe the better way to put it is, um, has the same impact on this. So there's gonna be certain aspects, certain components of the the scripture that are going to have more import to us because they're more pertinent, whereas perhaps um, all the details of the law are going to have less authority, less import to us. But all of it together still tells a whole picture story that is the word of God. When we use the word verbal here, I'm sorry I didn't write this on the slide, but verbal plenary. So that plenary was kind of the whole picture piece of it. And then verbal we are talking about the different words. We kind of use this idea to talk about, um, and this is gonna bleed into this next category, but the idea that we believe in the inspiration of the original manuscripts and truly the words even of the original manuscripts. Um, this can get tricky because the actual process of us getting the scripture into our hands involves a lot of translation. And it also involves a lot of what we would call textual transmission. And so it gets passed from person to person to person. And in so doing, there's copying errors and scribal errors, but there's also maybe interpretations get added in here and there. And so we believe that the original manuscripts um, are inspired by God. So we're really just kind of saying that to say, we don't have to incorporate textual errors in that. And we do, we have lots of, um, ways to understand textual errors. They're really not that big of a deal. So I don't know why we always feel like we have to emphasize it, but it is important to some people. It is important in general to acknowledge um, the human aspect of a, transmitting a text. But that brings me to my next big bucket point. Um, scripture is preserved by God. So we believe that little scribal errors notwithstanding, the whole meaning and message of the word of God has been preserved by God through editing, transmission, translation, and, the, and we have received it um, into our hands as a faithful preservation of the meaning and message of God. So scripture has been preserved by God. Lastly, our big bucket um, about scripture is that it has been, uh, or that it is rather, not has been, this is an ongoing um, um, component of scripture, it is currently illuminated by God. So we can't understand scripture truly and its true purpose to, to make known, to bring us into relationship with the living God 
unless he himself uses scripture to illuminate it to us, unless he himself makes himself understood through um, scripture. So for another way to put it, another thing to emphasize there is that um, the divine author is living and active. He continues to speak to us through his word. It's God himself who helps us to understand. Now, these are, this is kind of the big tent of a scriptural or doctrine of scripture. I think all, I can't imagine that anyone doesn't. Uh, I don't know all of my history here, but I, I think it's, I can confidently say all Christians believe this all, but doctrine of scripture certainly is an area where a lot of different denominations, most particularly Catholics and Protestants are going to disagree. They're just, you know, in some ways it's disagreeing, um, on the margins and in other ways, it's disagreeing in a way that, um, significantly breaks fellowship because, uh, we just approach how to organize the church, um, how to organize our lives, how to understand authority in very different ways. So, um, what I mean by that is one of, I just put the, put that up there. So let's scripture up one of the primary protests of the Protestant reformation was the Catholic view of scripture or rather protesting the Catholic view of scripture and authority. And, um, the, the rally cry, one of the five, right. For the Protestants was sola scriptura, meaning only scripture, only scripture guides rules informs is authoritative over our lives, not the tradition of the church. Now, this does not mean that the tradition of the church is not important. It does not mean that the church doesn't have authority over you or that you should not submit yourself to the church or that you shouldn't let um, the church's interpretation of scripture influence how you look at scripture. Um, it by no means uh, means that we just sort of leave aside script, uh, tradition and how people have interpreted scripture for thousands of years. And we just come up with our own interpretations. No, one of my key points we're going to get to is we read scripture by not, sorry, we read scripture for ourselves, but never by ourselves. But what it does mean, or what it simply means really is that the church does not get to add anything to scripture. Scripture has the highest authority. Nothing else has a similar authority or carries the same weight. The teachings of the church are only authoritative insofar as they are the teachings of scripture. So um, Catholics have a different view and they, they, um, they place a higher emphasis on um, the community of believers and the interpretation that has come out of the community. So there is... Um, you know, a distinction there. I think at times in Catholic history, uh, that emphasis on tradition has been unhealthy and led to some unhealthy practices. Likewise, at times, um, even in Protestant tradition, Sola Scriptura has also led to unhealthy practices and um, maybe too much of an emphasis on the individual and reinventing the wheel. So anyway, we very much land in Sola Scriptura, but I just kind of want to be transparent and honest with you about all of those things. So that is, and what's about to follow is going to be a largely Protestant view of scripture. I don't think that um, our Catholic brothers and sisters would say things quite the same way, or if they did, they might not mean exactly what we mean by it. Um, so there are four other attributes that I'd like to address. One is that scripture is necessary. It is necessary because we need a guide to understand God, the world, and ourselves. Um, and scripture is the God-given guide to understanding God, the world and ourselves. 
Romans 1 um, teaches us, as does so much of the Bible, that uh, creation itself is not sufficient to teach us about God. We have to hear it from his mouth. God speaking has always been the mode of communicating with us, right? Think about Genesis 1, God spoke things into being, about how Christ is the word of God. We could go into a whole philosophical tangent there, but I said I was going to keep this simple and or short and sweet, maybe not simple. I don't know. I don't know if I'm ever capable of keeping anything short, but I'm going to, I'm, I am trying for you guys. So anyway, it's necessary. Scripture is necessary. We need it. We cannot understand. We cannot come to God on our own. We cannot understand God on our own. We can't understand the world on our own. Necessary. Second, sufficient. We would say that scripture is sufficient. What we mean by that, we, notice it does not say exhaustive. It says sufficient. And the reason it says sufficient is because we believe that the Bible contains everything you need to know um, to be saved. Everything you need to know for personal salvation. It also contains everything you need to know to live a godly life, live a godly and blameless life through the means of the scripture. But um, it is also true that the Bible does not exhaust wisdom. It has everything that we need to live a godly life, but it doesn't tell us everything that we need to know in general to live or to be wise. So it does not exhaust wisdom, but it generates wisdom. So scripture is sufficient to generate wisdom within us that we can then apply to um, all the things that are not addressed in scripture. So necessary, sufficient, clear. Now, this one may seem to me more caveating, especially since um, we are doing a series of three whole lectures on how to interpret it. It was so clear. Do we really need so much work to try to interpret it? And sadly, there's some other caveats too, of just that um, I think the idea of scripture being clear has been used as kind of a bludgeon or a hammer for narrower and often more conservative readings of the text at times. Um, so I think the idea of it being clear, there's kind of this sense, it gets misinterpreted to mean that it's just self-evident and it's plain. Um, but I think sometimes I, we get hung up on the idea of scripture not being clear. It feels unclear to us, mainly when we're dealing with confusing passages. If we take a step back and we look at the whole of scripture, we can acknowledge that it tells a story from start to finish. Well, the story isn't over yet, but you know what I mean. Um, the overall story coheres. And so really, um, I think that where we want to land on the distinctions and the various interpretations of scripture, particularly as it relates to the more minority confusing passages, is to say that the dissension and confusion and debate that is a result of kind of these maybe more confusing, seemingly less clear passages, this confusion and dissension is not a result of something inherent to scripture, but something inherent to us. The reason that we cannot understand or come to unity in that understanding is because we are both broken and limited people. Something's wrong with us. It's not, it's not you, it's me when it comes to scripture, okay? Ultimately, our belief in the clarity of um, scripture rests in the clarity of its author. So we believe that God is clear and he has told us everything that we need to know and he has told us clearly and he will help us to understand it. So necessary, sufficient, clear, and authoritative. So this is 
feels probably maybe more obvious in, in many ways. It's just a summary of the previous points. We believe that God is authoritative over our lives. So therefore, and we also believe that the Bible is his word. Therefore, we believe that the Bible is authoritative over our lives. Um, another way to think about it maybe is to say that um, we believe that it is authoritative um, in the sense of we, that we might say the constitution is authoritative for the laws of our country, right? Nothing, there is no higher authority. There's no other book. There's nothing else that we can appeal to. Scripture has the ultimate authority, an entire authority. So there's no book or revelation that can get any kind of um, higher precedence in terms of obedience or um, rule over our life. The word carries the most weight. Now, there are two other, um, oops, sorry, don't want to scare you. There are two other attributes I need to address that inspire um, a little bit more debate. And um, I am going to stay very far away from this debate. I just want to tell you about them and give you the terminology. So you, um, maybe you're, it'll perk your ears up and you'll kind of be more aware when you see it out and about. So these two words are infallible and inerrant. So when we say the scripture is infallible, what we're saying is that it, it teaches what is true. It is trustworthy. It does not deceive. It does not lead astray. It points, um, along It point. It truly points to God. Now, the other word, an errant, um, means a little bit, sounds kind of similar, but it specifically believes or says, implies, whatever, that the Bible does not err. It contains no errors. Similar, but not the same. Now, if you believe that the Bible is inerrant, you are also going to believe that it is infallible. Those, I mean, that's kind of a categorical thing, right? But these two words have kind of gotten used to signify different camps. So there are going to be some people who are sort of infallibilists, or um, which means that they do not think they would not use the word inerrant to describe the scripture. And a lot of times we're just talking about semantics and distinctions, but it has created some very significant debate um, within Protestantism, and particularly, I feel like, within Baptists, but Kyle can correct me there. So the difficulties with inerrancy um, or the reason why some people don't want to use the word inerrant to describe the scripture is that there do appear to be some instances of contradictions in the Bible. Now, largely that has to do with um, different lists in the Old Testament um, or maybe some different dates and stuff in the New Testament that don't seem to quite, you know, add up or whatever, Um but I think really at the heart of it is um, a sense in which those who are emphasizing inerrancy want to emphasize the divine authorship. And those who disagree with inerrancy or don't want to say that emphasize in some ways the human authorship. I think that it would be, um, well, one sort of issue with inerrancy is I think it tends to get a bad rap because um, it's often been taken to mean that you have to interpret the Bible in very narrow and conservative ways in order to make it sort of free of error. Um, so things like a young earth, six little literal days of creation, particular views of women and, and so on and so forth. And so there has been, there has been a bit of um, a divide along sort of liberal and conservative in that sense. Um, but in reality, just because some people use the doctrine of inerrancy that way toward a particular, more narrower interpretation does not mean that you have to share those doctrinal convictions. It's not all part and parcel. 
It just means that we can't shortcut our interpretive work by saying the Bible made an error. It means we really have to wrestle with the text. And if we disagree with that interpretation, um, we have to, we have to figure out how it still coheres entirely within the text. Because the difficulty or the fear of those of us that want to emphasize inerrancy over only in infallibility is that we feel, of course, that to take the infallibility position is to make us the authorities over the word. We want the word to have authority over us. Now, that is an incredibly simplistic nutshell of um, both some significant historic or church history debates and also um, some big categories of theology. We can discuss all of them more later, but I just wanted to give you kind of a vocabulary um, before we move into our emphasis in just a second on sort of a how-to. So I'm going to go ahead and end this first lecture here. We can, you can, uh, we'll just kind of put a pin in it for the moment, and then we'll pick up the second lecture with um, looking at the challenges to interpretation.